in the second installment of the Back to the Future trilogy. The main protagonists, Marty McFly and Doc Brown, travel forward in time from 1985 to 2015. While there, Marty finds a sports almanac, a magazine, which records the events of every major sporting event between the years 1950 and 2000. However, the almanac falls into the hands of the movie's main antagonist, Biff, who manages to travel back in time to 1955 and present the almanac to a younger version of himself, saying, you see this book? It tells the future. It tells the results of every major sporting event until the end of the century. The information in here is worth millions, and I'm giving it to you. And armed with the almanac, the younger Bith does in fact bet his way to those millions. Don't know if you've seen Back to the Future or not, but I'm sure you've experienced at some point in your life the desire to know the future. If only you knew what was coming around the corner of your life, then you could make exactly the right choices. To know the future would give us the feeling of security and certainty. It would relieve us of unnecessary worries and fears. Imagine if you could have the almanac of your life. Imagine if you could know every twist and every turn that your life will take in the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years. Imagine. Of course, we don't live in the back to the future universe, and there is no almanac of our lives we can turn to. Rather, we live in God's world, and therefore we can turn to something much more sure than an almanac from the future. We can turn to the very words of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes 3. And whether you see the future as a time of new opportunities or as a time of new uncertainties. My prayer is that this passage will equip you to live each day with wisdom to the glory of God. The passage breaks down into three parts, or we could say three resolutions. We're five weeks into a new year, aren't we? And I'm sure most of us have made at least one or two resolutions. To be honest, I can't even remember what mine are. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you how you're getting on with yours. Instead, we'll focus on three resolutions that come from this passage that can guide us not just into the next year, but into many, many years. In verses 1 to 11, we see that we must resolve to remember God's sovereignty. In verses 12 and 13, we must resolve to receive God's gifts. And in verses 14 and 15, we must revere God's greatness. But before we jump into our first resolution, a brief word about context. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. That is, Ecclesiastes, along with Proverbs and Job, was written in order to help us to live skillfully in God's world. A world that is both good, God made it, and a world that is broken. It's been tainted by human sin. So throughout the book, Solomon describes how he observed life under the sun, and then from these observations, he proceeds to instruct us in wisdom. And in our chapter, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes 3, 
we find Solomon's observations and instructions regarding time. How can we relate to time skillfully? How can we walk into a future that is unknown with wisdom? So our first point, verses 1 to 11 of Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon instructs us to remember God's sovereignty. One temptation when thinking about the future is to become a little over-optimistic about what it represents. For example, think about the new year. For many, a new year represents a new start, new hopes, and new plans. It's a time to think ahead about what we'd like to achieve and about how we're going to get there. And so we make resolutions, we forge new habits, and we rearrange our schedules. I think Taylor Swift captures this mindset when she says, quote, this is a new year, a new beginning, and things will change. Now, while there's nothing inherently wrong with having hopes and plans for the future, and while there's much wisdom in making resolutions and forging new habits, we must be careful to always do so in light of the sovereignty of God. In all that we do and over everything that we plan, we must remember that God is sovereign. And that's actually the main point of verses 1 to 11 of Ecclesiastes 3. These are well-known verses, aren't they? And at first glance, you might think that the main point of these verses is something like time or the times and seasons of life. After all, Solomon mentions the word time 30 times. Indeed, the poem which makes up the first eight verses is about time, about the times and seasons we experience in our lives under the sun. But this is crucial. In verses 9 to 11, we get the interpretation of the poem. Look down at verse 11. Solomon writes, He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, Solomon is saying, whatever times and seasons we encounter in life are under the sovereign control of God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God is sovereign from the beginning to the end. Whether it's a time to be born or a time to die, God is sovereign. Whether it's a time to plant or a time to pluck up what is planted, God is sovereign. Whether it's a time to weep or a time to laugh, God is sovereign. Whether it's a time for war or a time for peace, God is sovereign. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We need to remember this truth, especially when we make plans for the future. Although we might plan well and work hard, life might not just work out the way we think it should. You might expect a time of building up, only to experience a time of tearing down. And that's why Solomon asks in verse 9, what do workers gain from their toil? I'm sure at times you have found life to be perplexing confusing, and even seemingly illogical. But if you're going to be wise, if you're going to stay sane, you need to remember that God is sovereign. And you need to remember this as also as a church. 
This church, like every other church, will go through times of loss. It'll go through times of searching. It'll go through times of plucking up what is planted. But it won't necessarily be because you've been unfaithful. And it won't necessarily be because you've lacked vision. You need to remember that even as the church, you still live in a broken world. And so you need to cling to the assurance that God is sovereign. But on the other hand, wherever things are going well, wherever the church is flourishing and life is good, and we can be tempted to trust in the plans that, that we make to somehow secure the future that, that we want, we need to hear afresh the words of Proverbs 19.21, which say, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And we need to hear James's warning in chapter four of his letter when he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go up into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Don't get me wrong. It's good and wise and godly to make plans for the future. It's good and wise and godly to make plans for the next year and for beyond the next year. But let's always sign those plans off with these words from James. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. After all, I'm sure Abram, living in Ur of the Chaldees, never planned to become the father of a multitude of nations. And I'm sure Saul of Tarsus, treading the dusty roads to Damascus, never planned to become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So as you think ahead to the future about the possible opportunities that it represents, resolve this. Resolve to remember God's sovereignty. But secondly, Resolve to receive God's gifts. Look at verses 12 and 13. Solomon writes that, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Notice the way in which Solomon begins these verses. I perceived that, or some translations say, I, I knew that. Solomon is drawing an inference from everything he's just said. If God is sovereign over our futures, then this is how we should live in the present. And what does he say? There is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. What do you think about that? Nothing better? What about holiness? Nothing better. What about loving your neighbor? Nothing better. What about the glory of God? But before we label Solomon a heretic, we need to carefully consider what he says. Did you pick up the last phrase of verse 13? This is God's gift to man. Solomon isn't suggesting that we adopt an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die theology that excludes God from the picture. No, this is a God-centered command to enjoy his gracious gifts. 
This is not a command to glory in our accomplishments or to be foolishly satisfied with our comforts. No, this is a call to experience every blessing in life, however mundane, as a gracious gift from the creator of all things. Whether that is the satisfaction of a hard day's work, an evening spent with the grandchildren, listening to your favorite music, drinking your preferred choice of coffee, or for me, those sweet Sunday morning lie-ins. Unless, of course, you're speaking at a church at 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> no, um, well, Ecclesiastes 3.13 says, these are God's gifts to man. These, in fact, are God's gifts to you. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's gifts, the ordinary, mundane gifts of life, are daily sovereign reminders from God, reminding us that He is good, that He cares for you, that He's faithful, that He doesn't change, and that He hasn't forgotten about us. God's gifts are shafts of light, that pierce the darkness of this world and reveal the smile of our Father in heaven. But let me ask you this. Do you have gifts, sorry, do you have eyes to see the goodness of God in his everyday gifts? Do you take the time to appreciate the ordinary blessings of life? Recently, I've been reading a book called The Things of Earth, Enjoying God by Enjoying His Gifts. And in the book, the author makes the point that we sometimes don't enjoy the blessings of life as, as fully as we should because we sometimes see enjoying them as in direct competition with enjoying and glorifying God. If we enjoy them too much, then we won't glorify God as we should. And, and quite often we feel a twinge of guilt, don't we? He gives an example of a guy called Tim, and he writes this. Tim is a sophomore in college, and he is sold out for Jesus. He's tired of comfortable Christianity and wants to live a radically God-centered lifestyle. He thinks that so-called Christians who, who read fiction or, or watch movies or, or play sports are, are wasting their time because, because they're not really finding their true satisfaction in God. However, deep down, he struggles with whether he himself is fully satisfied in God. He lives with a constant sense of guilt because he's too distracted by the things of earth. wonder if you can relate to Tim. I know I can. However, in the book, Joe Rigney goes on to argue that one of the primary ways we glorify God and one of the primary ways we experience his goodness is by enjoying the ordinary gifts of life. The more we appreciate the gifts, the more we will appreciate the giver, God himself. And he concludes with this. My aim is simple. I want to work with you for your joy. Your joy in your family. Your joy in your friends. Your joy in your pancake and eggs, your steak and potatoes, your chips and your salsa. Your joy in camping trips, workouts and iPod playlists. Your joy in your Bible, 
in worship services and in the quiet moments before you fall asleep. Your joy in your job, your hobbies, and your daily routines. And in and through all these things, I want to work with you for your joy in the living and personal God who gave you all these things, that you might enjoy him and them and him in them forever. A bit of a mouthful, but the point is clear. We can't afford to neglect God's gifts. Rather, we ought to receive them with joy and with thankfulness. Because if we take God's gifts for granted, we miss out on receiving the daily assurance of his goodness. Maybe for you, facing the uncertainties of the future feels like driving headlong into a dense fog. But these verses, verses 12 and 13 of Ecclesiastes 3, help us to see that even though we might not know where we're going, we can trust the God who is leading us there because he is good. So, Let's resolve to receive God's gifts. But thirdly and finally, let's resolve to revere God's greatness. Look at verses 14 and 15. Solomon writes that I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. These verses give us the climax of our passage. This is the take-home message. As you think towards the future, both personally and corporately as a church, what should you resolve to do? Verse 14 gives us the answer. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is God's purpose, and this should be our posture. We must resolve to revere God's greatness. What difference will it make if we fear God? After all, don't we want to remove the fear of an unknown future rather than increase it? To which I think Solomon would reply, the fear of the Lord is the fear that removes all other fears, or at least puts them into proper perspective. And that's what we need, isn't it? But what does the Bible mean when it talks about the fear of the Lord? I've heard some people say that to fear God is to be completely terrified of God, full stop. And I've heard other people say that to fear God means that we should have merely a healthy respect for God, And while I think there's truth in both of those, the best description of the fear of the Lord that I find is is actually in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and in his description of the Christ figure of Narnia, Aslan. It's in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that were first introduced to Aslan. But before Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy meet him face to face, they hear about him. They hear about how he, as the great king of Narnia, is is finally coming to overthrow the White Witch and to put everything to rights. But after finding out that, that Aslan isn't a man, but rather a lion, the great lion, they ask this, is he safe? To which they hear these words, safe? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what we need to believe deep down at the very core of our beings. Imagine standing in the presence of the most powerful being that exists, with enough power to wipe you out of existence without even lifting a finger. How scary would that be? But imagine if you knew that this being is as good as he is great. And imagine if you knew that this being is 100% on your side, no matter what, completely for you and not against you. What difference would that make to how you approach life? What difference would that make to how you approached the future? Maybe very honestly you'd admit that you've lost sight of the greatness of God. Or maybe because of circumstances in your life, you've begun to doubt the goodness of God. Let me encourage you to remind yourself of the gospel. Let me encourage you to remind yourself of Jesus Christ, the great lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who sovereignly created time, the one who sovereignly sustains time, and the one who will sovereignly wrap up time. And yet, at the right time, Romans 5, 5 says, Christ died for the ungodly. The great lion of the tribe of Judah who was led like a lamb to the slaughter for you and for your salvation. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. So that even if you might not know what the future holds in store, you do know what your ultimate future will be. In Christ an eternity of life without death. In Christ, an eternity of laughter without weeping. In Christ, an eternity of peace without war. And in Christ, an eternity of love without hate. You see, it's at the cross where we can lay down our hopes and fears for the future, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? In closing, in some ways, knowing the future would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But to know, or rather, to be known by the God who holds the future in his hands and walks with us step by step into that future is so much better, isn't it? So as you think about the future, make plans, dream big, explore possibilities, but through it all, Let's be wise and let's resolve to remember God's sovereignty, to receive God's gifts and to revere God's greatness. We're gonna close now with our final song, Sovereign Over Us. And, and maybe you wanna use this opportunity just, just again to place your trust once more in the God who is faithful forever perfect in love and sovereign over us.